Hi, and welcome to Procedure Ready OBGYN, a podcast aimed at helping you excel during your clinical clerkship in OBGYN. My name is Dr. Jennifer Dory. I'm an assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and former resident at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. I'm the founder of Procedure Ready, a collection of resources aimed to advance your clinical medical education. Let's get started. Let's talk about what you're going to need to know before you attend your first vaginal delivery. So the first thing to know is prior to this vaginal delivery, she's been in labor. Baby has been doing a series of events known as the cardinal movements of labor. First thing they do is their head engages within the maternal pelvis called engagement. Next is descent, in which the fetal head begins to descend within the pelvis. This is when the station, the fetal station we report with our vaginal exams, begins to increase actually from a negative number to a positive number. The baby has to flex its neck and touch its chin to its chest to decrease the diameter of the head that's coming through the maternal pelvis. The baby then has to internally rotate its entire body to decrease its diameter. When the baby's head begins to come under the pubic symphysis, it can actually extend its neck a tiny bit, and then it's going to externally rotate and eventually expulsion. So again, in quick succession, the cardinal movements of labor, engagement, descent, flexion, internal rotation, extension, and external rotation, finally expulsion. So let's talk a little bit about the logistics and what it's actually going to be like to be in a vaginal delivery. So one of the residents or attendings goes into the room and decides the mom is fully dilated. So we say she's complete now. That means she is 10 centimeters dilated, 100% effaced, and typically with that will come a station of zero station, plus one, or plus two. So now we need to decide, now that she's complete, do we begin pushing immediately or do we do something called laboring down? So whoever's taking care of the patient will decide, are we going to labor down or are we going to begin to push? If you're going to begin to push, your job as a medical student will often be to stay in the room and help with the pushing, to help mom lift her legs that are probably too heavy from her epidural for her to do it herself, and to help with the nurses and kind of see the process of what a vaginal delivery really takes. Now, if this is a prime, meaning this is her first baby, this pushing process can take a long time. Moms never really see this coming. But if you have an epidural, it can be normal to push for three to four hours with an epidural, as long as you're making progress and baby is coming down the birth canal. If you're a multip, it can be as quick as one push, or it could be as long as, again, three hours um, if you have an epidural and it's just taken a while. As long as you keep making progress, there's no contraindication to keep pushing as long as baby's heart rate looks good and you're making progress. So as a medical student, you'll often be in the room helping mom hold up her leg, helping her push, coaching her. So with each contraction, the goal is for mom to curl up around baby and push and they push like they're trying to have a bowel movement. It sounds funny, but it's the only pressure you've ever had down there in your life. And so you tell them to push like they're having a bowel movement. With each contraction, they're going to push three times and they're going to hold the push for 10 seconds. So often your job is fairly monotonous, counting one to 10 for mom so she can try to keep the motivation and keep pushing. It can feel like you're just literally a coach on the sidelines, but if dad's not great at it and the nurse has a lot of charting and things to do to make sure mom's actually safe, it can be a great job for you as a medical student. Um, When it comes time for delivery, hopefully you'll get the opportunity at one of these deliveries to gown and glove with the resident or with the attending. 
And during this delivery, you might have the chance to do what's called hands over hands, meaning you'll get to be the one with the first hands on the baby and whoever is coaching you, the resident or the attending again, will have their hands on top of yours to guide you through the maneuvers. Now, the basic maneuvers are pretty hard to describe um, using just a podcast, but we'll try. First thing I usually tell people is I put three fingers on the top of the baby's head. And this is because I want the baby to keep their chin tucked to their chest throughout the process of delivery. If their chin pops out, the diameter increases a lot and you can increase mom's tear. So I keep three fingers on the top of baby's head, just trying to encourage them to keep their head flexed and to slow down the process of the delivery. If she pushes out the baby really fast, again, it can increase the chance that she can get a more severe tear. And it's less comfortable for her, obviously, and more work for the resident to sew it back up. So if we can minimize tears, that's great. So a little bit of downward traction on the head. And then baby will do what's called restituting. Once the head kind of the chin clears the perineum, baby will look either to the left or to the right. Once it does, you're going to put your hands on either side of baby's head. You're going to have your fingers and your thumbs facing baby's nose. And your hands are going to be parallel to the floor. And you're going to push downwards, deliver the anterior shoulder of the baby, and then pull upwards as you deliver the posterior shoulder. These two shoulders, once these two shoulders clear mom's pelvis, the rest of the baby's going to deliver very quickly. So just be ready to catch after that. Um, When you quote unquote catch, you're not actually letting go of the baby and catching it. You're keeping your bottom hand underneath baby's head and you're sliding your extra hand down the body to bring it in safely to your chest. You're taking a quick evaluation. Does baby look good? As long as baby looks good, you're going to put baby straight up on mom's chest in the, in most cases. Some moms are going to say ahead of time, don't put the baby up on my chest. That sounds kind of gross. Clean it off. Bring it back to me once it's a little bit cleaner. I have an easy gag reflex or whatever. And that's fine too. But most moms are going to want the baby straight up on their chest, oftentimes on top of a blanket because we're going to want to dry off baby, make sure they're dry and stay warm, but straight up towards mom so mom can see. At this point, it's still connected to its umbilical cord, which is attached to the placenta and is in turn attached to mom's uterus. So we can't move the baby all too far yet. Nowadays, we actually do what's called delayed cord clamping in most places. So there was a study in roughly late 2016 or early 2017 that showed delayed cord clamping of about 30 to 60 seconds in a term infant decreased some negative fetal outcomes, mostly the amount of oxygen and things they could need. So we now do delayed cord clamping for most term infants, somewhere between 30 and 60 seconds. In all reality, this is probably about how long it's going to take you the first time or two to find the cord clamp and go clamp the cord. So you probably won't really feel like you're waiting too long, but we'll do 30 to 60 seconds and then we'll clamp and cut the cord. We clamp it with a plastic clamp that stays attached to baby and then a Kelly clamp. Um, And then we let dad often offer to let dad or somebody in the family cut the cord in between. Once you have the cord hanging down, oftentimes medical students, this is when you are going to step in and actually have a more active role in the remainder of this. If we want to collect cord gases, meaning we want to know baby's gas, baby's umbilical artery and vein, um, blood gas at the time of delivery to show that baby wasn't deprived of oxygen during the delivery period, we'll um, clamp off a segment of the cord to then draw gases off of. This is just similar to sending off an ABG in a, um, in a regular adult. 
but we can draw it off the cord so we don't have to stick baby. If we're not doing that, we're just going to empty a bit of the cord blood into a red, what's called a red top tube, just a normal tube, um, and send it to the lab. This is going to prevent baby from having to get a um, blood stick within the first 24 hours of life for you can do a CBC and you can do a type and screen off this to make sure baby and mom don't have um, incompatible blood types. So we're going to do that, and then it's going to be about time to deliver the placenta. One thing I forgot to mention is once the baby's anterior shoulder is delivered, most places are going to start your running your Pitocin. Most moms are going to get postpartum Pitocin. This is going to help their uterus clamp down. It's going to decrease their overall blood loss, as by as shown by a Cochrane meta-analysis. Um, delivering the, or the Pitocin beginning at the anterior shoulder, it doesn't increase the risk that the placenta is retained, but it does decrease mom's EBL, their estimate made a blood loss. So oftentimes we're going to start that Pitocin either at the anterior shoulder or as soon as baby's out because nurses are doing a lot of things at this point and helping out. So they can't always start it right away, but starting that as soon as possible. Then we're going to get ready to deliver the placenta. And this is often what the medical students are going to get to do during their first or even their second delivery before we're ready to do hands on, hands over hands or have, have you actively participate in the delivery of the baby. So when you deliver the placenta, you're going to put a Kelly clamp or some other type of clamp, a hemostat, something like that, on the cord pretty close to mom's perineum. You don't want to be touching her, especially if she doesn't have an epidural, but you want to be pretty close to the source if you can. The placenta, remember, is still attached to the uterus. And the reason it's going to get expelled is that your uterus is clamping down and it's going to start releasing it. So what we can do is we can feel the uterus through mom's abdomen. We can massage the uterus and we can make sure that uterus stays up high so that it doesn't, you don't cause what's called a uterine involution or inversion. And that's if the uterus were to, instead of being convex, become concave and the, um, it, be, it stops it from being able to clamp down well and makes it bleed a little bit more. So we're holding the uterus up, we're massaging it, and people can show you the techniques for this on your first delivery or two. And then you're doing what's called gentle downward traction on the cord. You're pulling downward. So instead of pulling directly out from her vagina, you're pulling down more at an angle towards the rectum. That's because if you think about, if you're feeling the uterus above her pubic symphysis and you're able to feel it way up there, the angle that you need to pull that cord at to really be providing downward traction for the placenta is pretty steep down. Remember, just like baby, it's got to go under that pubic symphysis. So pulling it straight out, you're not going to get much movement. You got to pull it at a nice downward angle. Once that, once you begin pulling that, eventually don't pull too hard. You can break the cord. Um, you'll see three signs that the placenta is starting to let go. And this is something that they often pimp you on. So pay attention. Three signs of placenta being released are one, there's usually a gush of blood. You'll see this little bit, oh, it'll be pretty dry. And then all of a sudden you'll see a couple tablespoons of blood coming running down. So a gush of blood. The next one, cord lengthening. So obviously, if the placenta is starting to release, the cord's going to get longer in your hand. So you'll feel the cord start to release a little bit and cord lengthening. The third one is actually going to be, you're going to notice it with your other hand, not the hand holding the cord, but the hand massaging the uterus and holding the uterus up. It's going to be all of a sudden the uterus is going to get quite a bit smaller and it's going to descend a bit. And that's going to be your third sign. So the uterus coming down, the blood, um, the bloody show or the uh, um, gush of blood, and then the lengthening of the cord are your three signs of placental detachment that the people will ask you about because that's going to be your first job is going to be delivering the placenta. All right. So say your placenta is now out. And we're going to do what's called a um, bimanual massage where we're, we have a hand in the vagina feeling the posterior portion of the uterus, a hand above um, the abdomen feeling the anterior portion of the uterus, and we're going to be massaging her uterus. And this is because atony is the number one cause of postpartum hemorrhage. 
I'm going to say it again because you will be asked this. Atony is the number one cause of postpartum hemorrhage. And so that's the most common thing we worry about after delivery is that the uterus, the muscle is just so tired, especially in people who have had an induction, who have polyhydramnios or an overextended uterus or an overdistended uterus. People who have been on Pitocin for a long time um, are all, or a really long labor or infection, all reasons that your muscle is going to be tired. It's working too hard and it's not going to want to clamp down and stop the bleeding that comes from the natural detachment of the placenta. So we worry about this atony and this bleeding a lot. So you're going to have usually the resident or the attending, whoever you're with, they're going to have the hands um, massaging and making sure it feels firm. If the bleeding is minimal and it feels firm, they'll kind of step back and start to get ready for the repair. But if they're bleeding, let's talk about bleeding real quick. What can we do for bleeding? For bleeding, we have three or four, really four main medications we use, but one we already talked about. First one that almost every woman gets nowadays is Pitocin. The I usually describe it to moms as it's the laboratory analog of oxytocin that you are making in, um, that moms are making in their body and they release it naturally. But if we give them a little bit extra, it decreases the chance that they're going to bleed too much. So that they're already getting their Pitocin. The second medication we can use, and usually the second line medication, is going to be something called mesoprostol. This is a medication you've probably heard about when you learned about abortions, spontaneous, missed, therapeutic, all of the above can use mesoprostol. It is a prostaglandin, and it helps the uterus contract. Um, you can just you can give it several different ways. You can give it buccal or in the cheek. You can give it sublingual beneath the tongue. You can give it vaginally, which doesn't work so well if you're actively bleeding from the vagina. Or you can give it rectally, which is how it's most often given on labor and delivery. Uh, most of the time we're giving this in a situation in which we're not sure uh, mom might be getting woozy, she's busy, we don't want to ask her to put it in her cheek and let it dissolve. Although if you're in a situation where she can, that way works just as well, if not a little bit better and faster than rectal. So rectal or buccal are usually how you'll see us give it. Um, and the bad things about mesoprostol, there's no strong contraindications except an allergy, but mesoprostol can cause a little bit of a transient fever postpartum. And so we worry that we might be making ourselves chase a postpartum endometritis picture with a fever later on when it's really attributable to mesoprostol. But if we want to do mesoprostol, you can give either 800 or 1,000 milligrams, like I said, either rectal or buccal. No real contraindications except allergy. Second medication we use is often methergen. Methergen, we have to worry about though. So the main contraindication of methergen is anybody with a hypertensive disorder. So if you have chronic hypertension, um, gestational hypertension, preeclampsia, preeclampsia with severe features, any of that stuff, it can cause transient hypertension. And so giving somebody transient hypertension on top of their already existing gestational or hypertension or preeclampsia can be dangerous. We can put people at risk for strokes, um, which nobody wants to do. So we won't give that if you have high blood pressures. So methergen, not good for people with blood pressures. Um, methergen is given IM, so in a single injection, usually in the thigh. Um, and it can be repeated at a fairly good interval as long as you don't have hypertension issues. Third medication we can use is called hemabate or carboprost. It is a um, 
it is contraindicated in asthma when that's what we worry about. So we mentioned in one of the earlier podcasts where we talked about labor and delivery triage, whenever I take a history and physical from a lady who may or may not be in labor, I always specifically ask if she has any history of asthma because hemabate will and often does cause an asthma exacerbation. Even in people who say, no, it was only a childhood asthma. I haven't used an inhaler in years. It can cause bronchioconstriction and an asthma exacerbation. So we don't give hemabate to anybody with a history of asthma. The negative side effect of hemabate, it's not very fun. It can cause really kind of explosive diarrhea. And you'll see this if you ever have to give hemabate during a C-section. Because if you're giving hemabate during a C-section, you're probably just at the point where you're closing the uterus. You probably are going to stay in the OR for at least another 20, 30 minutes. And you will probably get to experience that not so fun code brown while still in the OR or trying to move her off of the OR table. Um, So that will stick with you. If you see it once, hemabate causes explosive diarrhea. So you Usually if we give somebody hemabate, we're going to give them low modal or emodium to really concentrate their stools so that they don't have explosive diarrhea for all too long. They're probably still going to have it, but hopefully not too badly. So those are our three acne medications. Uh, well, the fourth it being Pitocin, but the three ones we think of after the Pitocin because everybody gets the Pitocin. Mesoprostol, 800 to 1,000 micrograms, rectal or buccal. Methergen, um, and that is an IM, an intramuscular injection, not for people with hypertension. Hemabate is, an, again, an intramuscular, or this can actually be given um, intrauterine. If you're in a C-section, you inject it straight into the myometrium. Um, the hemabate is not for people with asthma, and it causes diarrhea. So those are the things to remember about our acne medications. All right, so going back to our vaginal delivery, we've done our vaginal delivery. We don't have any acne. She's just gotten her normal Pitocin. And now we're going to go ahead and take a look at what lacerations do we need to repair? A couple different things about lacerations. Most people are going to have what's called a perineal laceration, which is going to be from the introitus of the vagina straight down towards through that perineal body towards the rectum. Um, These lacerations have four different degrees. A first degree perineal laceration is just going to be through her vaginal mucosa. You're going to be able to maybe see some muscle fibers, but they will be intact. If you see muscle fibers that are transected, that's what gets you into a second degree. So first degree, vaginal mucosa only. Second degree, you have some of your um, vaginal musculature has been transected. So uh, muscle wall involvement. Third degree goes through the perineal muscles and down towards the anal sphincter. For a third degree, you can have involvement. You have to have at least involvement of the external anal sphincter, and that can just be the capsule. So if you ruptured your capsule and you can see the capsule, it looks like fascia that you'll see during C-sections and things. It's a white fibrous capsule around this external anal sphincter. So if that is broken and you can see the muscle underneath, that is a partial third or something should be categorized as a third degree. If that muscle itself is ruptured, that is also a third degree. And there's different classifications within third degree. But for your purposes, you should really only need to know external anal sphincter involvement, third degree. Fourth degree is all the way through and through. So that creates a single hole from the vagina down through the rectum. That means you've gotten your rectal mucosa involvement. Um, So that means you're going to have to fix your rectal mucosa, the sphincters, and then come back up and close... um, the muscles that create the perineal body and again, the vagina. 
Um, so third and fourth degree lacerations are thankfully fairly rare. They're going to be more common if you've had to do what's called an operative vaginal delivery, meaning you use a vacuum or forceps to help deliver the baby faster for some reason. Um, but they're going to be fairly uncommon with spontaneous vaginal deliveries. Most commonly, you're going to see first and second degree perineal lacerations. It's also possible to have a few other types of lacerations. There's something called a sulcal laceration, which if you think about the vagina as a clock, would be down at about five and seven o'clock, and they track back towards the cervix. Um, those ones tend to bleed a lot because they're a little bit more lateral near closer to those perforating vaginal vessels that we have that um, provide blood supply to the vagina. So they can, they can bleed quite a bit, the sulcal lacerations. You can also have vaginal lacerations that can be anywhere. Um, and you can have the other ones we particularly name are periurethral. So if it's anywhere near the urethra, again, we get worried just because they can cause swelling, discomfort, and urinary retention. And periclitoral, again, very uncomfortable. And so we hope we don't do those. Another reason to really keep nice downward traction on the baby's head while you're delivering the baby so it doesn't pop up and cause any types of anterior lacerations. The goal is really to keep the lacerations posterior because those anterior ones bleed are more painful and are a lot more difficult and uncomfortable for everybody to repair. Um, the only other thing, so if somebody asks you what type of laceration is this, if you're looking at it, if you have no idea, you remember nothing else, guess second. It is the most common by far. Um, if you can actually get in there and look, vaginal mucosa only is first, muscle involvement is second, external anal sphincter involvement is third, and all the way through to the rectal mucosa is fourth. Um, so those are your lacerations. After you finish repairing the laceration, which is typically going to be with Vicryl, occasionally some people are going to use Chromic um, in terms of suture. You're going to clean up, you're going to wipe off everything, you're going to just get her dry and comfortable, and then you're going to put the bed back together, and you're going to leave and do all the paperwork and the orders postpartum. Um, that is sort of the general overview of what to expect for your first vaginal delivery. Watch some videos, look at the pimped um, YouTube playlist. We've got some good examples of the different cardinal movements, the hand positions for your vaginal deliveries, and walking you through what to expect when it comes to your first vaginal delivery. Um, most importantly, if you ever get woozy during any part of OBGYN, and this often happens during vaginal deliveries, sit down ask somebody for a seat. We would always rather you disappear and sit down somewhere than faint in our, in our OR or in our labor and delivery room. Um, it's totally acceptable. You don't need to say anything. Just walk out. Tell us afterwards you felt woozy. That is okay. I don't need two patients. Mom and baby, I've got two already. I don't need you as my third. So take care of yourself. Tell us when you have your limitations and don't worry about it. Labor and delivery is to have fun and let you have a chance to see a little bit of everything. Um, so if you need to excuse yourself, feel free. Dads have to do this a surprising amount of the time in labor and delivery. It's a pretty interesting experience the first time around. No better way to put it. Thanks for listening to Procedure Ready OBGYN. Hope you found today's podcast helpful. Don't forget to subscribe below, rate the podcast, and leave me a review. Your reviews seriously make my day every time. Have you done your pediatrics rotation yet? We just launched a new Clerkship Ready pediatrics podcast to help. We're always looking for new collaborators. If you know a phenomenal medical educator who should make a procedure-ready or clerkship-ready podcast for their specialty, pass along your information and we'll see if they want to collaborate. Finally, check us out at ProcedureReady.com for more helpful resources like our flashcard deck and our YouTube playlist.